The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This chapter this evening, as uh, we've spent uh, last week in it, and of course we'll finish, uh, well, the first part of, uh, of two weeks ago also, and then last week, and now finishing up actually the message that we began uh, last week concerning uh, the latter part of Daniel chapter number four. I want to remind you as we're moving along, we'll pick up of course uh, with verse number uh, 28 is where we will end up officially starting at. But I do want to give a little bit of a recap and re- uh, recall to rem- our, our memory what we've already discussed concerning this portion of scripture. Uh, we start off with the fact that uh, it's better to learn from the things that Nebuchadnezzar are, is, has experienced here in this chapter and what he speaks about than to have to learn it the hard way, of course. And we, we, That was two weeks ago. Then we started this message last week. We entitled it, God is God and we are not. And uh, we want to remind ourselves that the, the structure of Daniel chapter number 2 through Daniel chapter number 7 is a literary structure that we call a chiasm. Uh, point A, uh, of course, correlating with, uh, uh, with A prime and then point B with B prime and C with C prime, of course. Each one making its way to the main point. Uh, but along the way corresponding with one another, chapter 2 with 7, chapter 3 with 6, and chapter 4 with chapter number 5, of course. Now, we also said that uh, chapter number 4 is structured uh, in its own mini-chiasm in a way, being A, B, B prime, and A prime on its way out. It starts with Nebuchadnezzar praising the Lord uh, for who he is and what he has done, it gives the instructions of the, uh, the information about the dream uh, and then, the, of course, the interpretation and the results of the interpretation of the dream and then ends and concludes the chapter with, again, Nebuchadnezzar praising the Lord for who he is. And so we started off, of course, uh, in chapter number four, two weeks ago, with, uh, with the point of the throne's honor. Now, I'm just calling that to your remembrance because we're going to come back to that matching with the chiasm, of course. But last week, our first point, and the only point we actually got, a, uh, got through, uh, was the point of the terrible hereafter. And so we discussed how uh, Nebuchadnezzar had had the dream, and uh, Daniel was able to, of course, interpret the dream, and it had an edge to it. Uh, it was going to be experienced, uh, and that was inevitable. And uh, we spoke a little bit about what that tree and the, the vision meant. And so I think I have one more slide on that one right there. Yeah. And so we have, of course, the vision was of a tree. And it was a great mighty tree. And its uh, branches stretched out you know, and just was enormously uh, long. Of course, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, everyone in the world was able to see this one tree. That's how magnificent, how mighty it was. Of course, uh, we spoke about the meaning of all that, the meaning that the tree represented King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Of course, its branches and the birds or the fowls of the air living within the branches was was an indication of the Gentile world being underneath the provision and protection of God. And Jesus himself even spoke about that in the New Testament as he spoke about the birds who would find cover uh, in the sycamine tree and such. And so, nevertheless, we're seeing the magnitude 
magnitude and the reach and the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's rule and reign and the power of his kingdom. Of course, those animals that fed underneath the tree, uh, speaking about the provision and the way that the, the nation as a whole or the kingdom as a whole was able to be taken care of. Then, of course, the reach of the tree or the shade of the tree spoke about the security that this kingdom had. After all, when you are the most powerful nation or kingdom in the entire world, you don't have a lot of people lining up to come and attack you. And no doubt, uh, Babylon was pretty, uh, pretty safe, pretty uh, uh, uneventful, if you may, as far as wars and such are concerned, uh, kingdom for quite a long time. We understand, of course, the Medes and the Persians, they come and they attack and they overthrow. That's all part of God's plan, as we learned out of chapter number two and the statue that was uh, started with the head of gold that represented Nebuchadnezzar as well. But nevertheless, we read on and said that after a time that God was going to have this tree hewn down or cut down. And of course, uh, this was God humbling uh, Nebuchadnezzar and taking away some power at that time. But what was left of the tree? It was cut down, but there was a what left in the ground? A stump. And so that stump represented the fact that God wasn't done yet. The stump represented the opportunity to be replaced or to put back into place, I should say, and for growth to happen again. There was two bands around uh, the stump as well. The Bible tells us made of iron and of brass, of course, representing the fact that, he, that Nebuchadnezzar, as represented by the tree, uh, of course, uh, was now being bound or in the control completely of God Almighty, iron and brass of that of judgment and such. And of course, uh, one day, the tree would be restored. It would grow back. Now, we went through all of those things last week, of course, and uh, that was the, uh, the, the terrible, uh, well, no, let's see. What was, was the point number one? Give, go back to the, the point. I I'm, missed I'm stuff in my notes there. The terrible hereafter. And uh, then, of course, let me move on here, and I think I might even have my slides messed up. Does point number two to say the terrible hereafter as well? Oh, okay, praise the Lord. I, th I haven't messed up in my notes, and so that's why I was concerned there. Point number two, let's jump right into it tonight. And uh, of course, as we move along through this chapter, we see this throne humbled. And of course, verse number 28 is where we're going to pick up, and uh, it, it gets to the bottom line. All these things that have been, uh, been given in the vision by God and interpreted by Daniel, they come to pass. And notice verse number 28. And all this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked into the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And then verse number 31, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee. Remember, this narrative is written by Nebuchadnezzar, or at least dictated to Daniel, and then Daniel writing it down, of course. We see how Nebuchadnezzar speaks in the first person, and it's an account from his perspective. But now we find here that, um, in a sense, the exact things that God had said would cause Nebuchadnezzar to be judged 
And the very exact things that Daniel had warned in the interpretation of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar to cease from doing, that, because that was going to bring judgment, now in an essence we are reading Nebuchadnezzar admitting verbally, openly, that this is his problem. Because read what he says in verse number, 20, or verse number 30. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built by the might of my power and for my honor? And so he is blatantly speaking about the fact of the, the pride that is indwelling his heart. He had been warned that there was going to be judgment from God, a humbling from God that was going to come. And Daniel even seemingly gave the, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, an opportunity maybe to be able to escape it or at least to put it on pause so then it wouldn't come as quickly. And uh, he said if he would cease from sinning, if he would do merciful acts to the poor, then maybe God, the God of heaven, would have mercy upon him. But we find that maybe, maybe it got his attention, maybe day one. And maybe he kind of got his act together seemingly at first, but regardless of how it all went down, we read that after 12 months, the things that God had warned was going to happen, they happen. Notice that evidently he ignored the exhortation to do right. He ignored the exhortation to show acts of mercy. See, the events of the dream did not come to pass until, until 12 months later. They didn't happen the very day of the interpretation that Daniel gave. They didn't happen the very next day after the interpretation that Daniel gave. But a period of time had been given. And no, no, no doubt this delay would, would just speak to the observation that the psalmist had made that we spoke about last week. Uh, Psalm 7, verses 11 through 16. God judgeth the righteous... And uh, God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordained his, uh, ordained his arrows against the, per, uh, the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and is fallen into the ditch which he made his mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own pate we find here that the psalmist said that it's as if the one who experiences the judgment of god has dung the, dug their own hole and they've fallen right into it and seemingly this is what is taking place with nebuchadnezzar he's had the opportunity to know what is coming Daniel even seemingly extends him an opportunity to get it right, and he continues in the way he's always lived, not, not changing a thing. We find in verse number 30 that the king relates how he was reflecting. He was speaking about the grandeur of the place, probably to himself. Talk about pride when you have to talk to yourself all the time and talk yourself up. But nevertheless, he's reflecting about how great Babylon has become. And no doubt, ancient records state that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was, was a great kingdom. He had a lot to boast about, and the splendor of the kingdom was grand. Josephus, the, uh, the Hebrew historian, quoting another historian of antiquities, Barosus, he said this, Nebuchadnezzar had much to boast about. 
His impressive building exploits were some of the most ambitious in all of ancient history. Babylon's capital city uh, was walled to a circumference of about 17 miles around. And then the king's palace was in that city itself with a se- inside of a second set of walls that, were in- was that encup- encompassed that palace uh, by a diameter of five miles around. Of course, we understand that the Euphrates River... Uh, went right through the center of the city of Babylon. And the hanging gardens of Babylon inside the palace were one of the seven lost wonders of the world with an elaborate water supply. So yes, Babylon was a, a, an amazing place. It was a, a, a tremendous kingdom. And there was, no doubt, physically and worldly speaking, much to take, take in and to be happy about, to boast about if you wanted to go that far. There was grand statues of bulls and dragons that would hang in different places of the garden. And ultimately, uh, uh, they, they lined the avenue that led to the temple that was erected to their god Mar- uh, Marduk as well. But the key comment in, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the key comment in his boasting is found there in verse number 30. Where he said that all of these wonders and all of these things to take in. And all, of these, all this grandeur that was there, the key wording there is that it was done by his own might and his own power. The key wording was that it was for his own magnificence. And my friend, he could not have been wrong on any account. More wrong, I'm sorry, on any account. For we understand that God Almighty was the one who gave him his power. God Almighty was the one who allowed him to win his battles. He, he, he learned this as Daniel interpreted the dream in, in Daniel chapter number 2. That God established him as such. That the power that he had that reached the entire world truly was from God. See, my friend, Nebuchadnezzar did not make Babylon great. The Lord made Babylon great by his plan and by his power. And he didn't accomplish anything in his own might. Anything that had been accomplished was by the power that the Lord had allowed to be accomplished in Babylon. And the Babylon wasn't elevated so that King Nebuchadnezzar could receive the glory and the honor and the majesty. Babylon was elevated so that ultimately the Lord himself would get the honor and exaltation for what would take place. See, But the king's pride blinded him from being able to see uh, God at work. And my friend, let me wa- give a warning tonight that pride will always do that in every single person's life. When I, we allow our hearts to be filled with pride, when we allow our, ourselves to become blinded with pride, we will not truly see the one who is at work doing the things that he is unfolding. God had told him that he had elevated him to this position. The Lord had said he had placed him there for his purpose, not for Nebuchadnezzar's own purposes. And the dream even told that Nebuchadnezzar uh, would not last this way forever. Remember, we've studied this already. Chapter number two, after the head of gold came another kingdom. And that he would be overthrown one day. But all of this is lost as Nebuchadnezzar is just was raging in pride at what he says he's accomplished. He had forgotten God and it is always the way pride works. When we 
get prideful, we forget the one that matters the most. I'll say it this way. Pride is spiritual amnesia. It causes us to forget God in every sense, and our ego is only too happy to step into the vacuum that we've created. Pride was the first sin. The Bible tells us that Satan's heart was, as he was Lucifer, the angel, was, was dwelling in pride. And he said, I will be like the Most High. And that was what got him cast out of heaven. Of course, we've studied in Romans on Sunday mornings recently, but Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 21 says this, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But verse number 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. What does that mean? They were prideful, and they felt like they accomplished something in and of them, their own selves. See, the, here's the thing about it, though. Nebuchadnezzar knew God, at least to the extent of the fact that he was real, to the extent of Daniel's interpretations of the dreams. And so he knew that he was a God and that there was power at least in him as well. And he knew the Lord's word as it had been revealed by Daniel. But we, all this leads to the fact that when God's time or his extension of repent, for repentance is up, that God's judgment will come and it will come rather swiftly as well. God is gracious. God is a gracious God, and He gives time and opportunity for us to be able to uh, repent and, and to seek His face. And maybe His judgment will be stayed, but ultimately that time will come to an end. And when that time has come to an end and we have not turned to Him, His judgment will be enacted quickly. So we've seen here tonight, this terrible hereafter, we're beginning to see what is about to take place, that he ignored the exhortation, but also notice how the indictment is executed in verses 31 through 33. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou, uh, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of the heaven, until uh, his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Verse number 31 reports to us that even as he's uttering this prideful boast that God speaks from heaven, and as I read it, it almost seems as the pronouncement of the judgment has kind of a bit of sarcasm even in it. Because before the final boast of Nebuchadnezzar is even out of his mouth, the Lord has already nullified his boast. He's saying, look at all that this is, the, uh, that is out here. Look at all that I have done. Look at all that I have created towards my magnificence. And before he's even able to finish the sentence, the, de the king's declaration has been overridden by the Lord himself's de declaration. It's as if Nebuchadnezzar standing there saying, I'm the king of the hill, and God quickly responds with, not anymore. And we find that the 
promise, the, the judgment that had been foretold of is now in full execution mode. The Lord's declared sovereignty is now completely on display as he has humbled the most powerful man in the world. Ironically, this man who felt as if he was able to control everything and had erected all of this grandeur of his own volition now is being made to seem insane by the power of the Lord. The Bible tells us that first he was thrust away or driven away from mankind and Nebuchadnezzar had lived in this palace and, this, and in the beauty and the grandeur of the uh, things that were constructed in Babylon. And now he's driven from the, the, the wonderful things of a high society, if you may, to have to live in the wilderness, to live out in the wild. And instead of living, in, uh, uh, living a life of luxury, he is literally living outdoors in, outdoors in the fields where the beast would live. No, but no doubt he would now have become the talk of Babylon, but not in the way he wanted. He, he, he took pride in the fact that everybody knew his name. But now everybody knew his name as the king who went mad. And not the way he would have desired for it to be known. In keeping in his, with his new animal nature, the Bible tells us that he would only eat grass. Now, whether it's literally he's only eating grass or eating just vegetation, that's neither here nor there, but we understand it's definitely not a normal human diet. Well, unless you're a vegetarian, maybe something like that. But it's definitely not a normal human diet. Yeah, but we understand that he's, the Bible tells us this was part of his life, that he's like an animal, like a beast that is just going about, finding and ravaging for his own food. Uh, he had enjoyed a life of luxury with all the finest of foods as well. And now that is completely gone from him. While he had been denying mercy to those that needed it, to the poor, now he is experiencing a life of nothingness. We find here that everything's been turned upside down. Now, although... All of these things have been poured down onto Nebuchadnezzar. Never forget that God is still showing him grace at this time even. But let's just consider for a moment. If he is not in his right mind, walking about, acting as an animal, can I tell you that I have my own set of animals at my house? We've got a couple dogs, a cat, chickens, and all that craziness. Well, next thing you know, we're going to be a farm. I don't know what's going on around my place. But nevertheless... If you have a dog especially, you've probably seen the dog go out and eat things they're not supposed to. We had started a fire in the fire pit outside last night, and when we were finished, I took a pitcher of water, doused it, made sure it was completely out and all that. We don't want to start any crazy wildfires or anything like that, but took care of that and went back inside, came, uh, out, woke up this morning and uh, looked out the back door and strewn all across the backyard are pieces of the burnt wood that was left in there. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why are you trying to eat burnt wood? Like, it's got to taste burnt. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? What is going on? But they were out there. We, we, we'll get in the, when, when uh, you know, in the spring or sometimes closer to summertime here, depending on how much rain we get and when we get it, when things start to come in the bloom, we'll have these wild poppies that pop up in our yard. And they've got thorns all over them. They're actually poisonous to animals or uh, uh, to some extent 
But I'll look out there, I'll see them sniffing at them, wanting to try to bite on them and things. I'm like, what is wrong with you? They've got thorns all over them. Gotta, it's got to hurt whenever you try to bite these things. Uh, they're just crazy. Or here's the best one yet. The dog has an upset stomach. And it goes out in the yard and it throws up. And then a few minutes later, you see it out there sniffing it and eating its own throw up. Yes, you did have to hear that. What I'm saying is, the things that an animal eats don't make much sense. Sometimes they eat things that aren't good for them. I've known people that have had pets, and they look at them as their own family members, and so as soon as they get sick, they run them to the vet, and the vet said, oh, they ate something that just wasn't good for them. Make sure you got stuff, you put your stuff away, and that they can't get anything. Well, why did they eat it? Because they're stupid. And as an animal, listen, as, as, this, as Nebuchadnezzar has this mind of a wild beast as an animal, the fact that he's able, uh, we're going to get to why I believe it's the, the period of sevens that it talks about is seven years. He was able to survive in the wilderness acting as an animal for seven years without eating anything that killed him. He was out in the wilderness, out in the desert. Desert days are hot. Desert nights are extremely cold at times. He would have been out in the elements with all the wild beasts, including lions. And for seven years, he survived. Tell me God had not been good to him. It was a judgment from God, but still even God's grace has been extended during this time to him. As long as he was alive, he was king and though I suspect the handling of all the business that went on in Babylon wasn't, of course, definitely not being done by him, probably most likely Daniel was keeping the kingdom together during, during this time. God was gracious in the fact that when he got his mind back, he went right back to work as well. But let's jump in to go a little further. Look at verse number 33. It says, the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men to eat grass of the oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till the hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. And we had read earlier on how it was a time of sevens as well. The reason why I believe that these times of sevens equal seven years is the, the uh, information that is given about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar as, uh, as this time is going on. See, the description here uh, tells us that his hair had grown to the point as looking like eagle's feathers. I have a slide with that on there. And uh, so here's an eagle's wing. And uh, depending on what type of eagle it is, whether it's bald eagle or whatever the case might be, nevertheless, it's the wing length and the length of the feathers, they vary in, in size. But nevertheless, a full-grown eagle is probably their feathers are going to be the length of about 22 inches or so. So, my hair is not 22 inches long, but I don't think, it definitely, I don't believe it could be seven days, because a man's hair is not going to grow 22 inches in seven days. I believe it's going to be seven weeks, because my hair is not going to grow 22 inches in seven weeks either. So, if it's going to be a period of sevens, it must be something along the lines of seven years it even also goes to speak about the fact that his 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 nails his fingernails and toenails and such grew to be like uh the a bird's claw give me that next slide with that on there there's a the claw of an eagle and next to the fist of a of a full-grown man 
that's pretty massive right there. Uh, but my fingernails would not grow to that length in seven days, nor even seven weeks. And I don't think I could get them that long in seven months either. And so again, what I'm, when we read these things and then apply the other information that is given to us about the event that has taken place, we can come to a logical conclusion that it is more than likely speaking of seven years. And so for seven years, this man has gone mad. For seven years, he's out in the wilderness. And for seven years, he is truly uh, at the mercy of the external world, but still somehow and for some reason being protected by God Almighty. But the thing that we want to definitely understand from this is as the people of God saw all of this taking place, it had to be a tremendous encouragement to them to see their adversary humbled. Here's the man that led the armies into their, uh, into their city, took the best of the best captive, took them back to Babylon, left the city ravaged. After a, a period of time of, of insurrection and, and fighting, he finally comes in and just completely demolishes Jerusalem, tearing down the walls, destroying the temple, dragging everyone, all the remnant, back to the city of Babylon itself. And, they've, and they're, they're brought in as he's declaring, you have to bow to this golden image that I've uh, erected, as we read in chapter number three. And to see their adversary humble, it had to be an encouraging thing to know that God is still in control. Here, is, here we are, God's people, that have lost seemingly our identity. Maybe probably a lot of them wondering whether or not God is actually still alive, if he still cares for them. And to see God work in such a way had to bring them great comfort in knowing that he's still on their side and that he's still in control. That's the point of this chapter, after all, to show that even in the midst of everything, God is always in control. Can you imagine how they must have felt? Maybe like some people are feeling today. But could you imagine how they must have felt wondering where God had gone? Wondering why would he allow this? What have we done to have him forget us and to forsake us? But he's proving again that even when he allows the seemingly horrible to take place, He's still in control, and it's all part of his almighty plan. So we've seen, of course, the, uh, the terrible hereafter. The throne is humble. But as I close tonight, I want you to notice verses uh, 34 through 37. And remember with me back to the first point of two weeks ago's message, and we'll conclude it with this point tonight, the throne's honor. As we read in verse number 34, and it says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, notice real quick that all the first part of chapter 4, all the way through verse number uh, 32, um, is all in the first person. It's Daniel describing or di uh, taking the dictation from Nebuchadnezzar of what had taken place, and he's writing it down. Of course, the Holy Spirit insp inspiring all that, all scriptures given by inspiration. But nevertheless, all the way through verse number one, through verse number 31, uh, or ver verse number 30, is in the first person. Then verse number 31, it says, while the king was in the whose mouth? 
king's mouth. Now it becomes the third person. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he's mad. He's lost his mind. He's a wild beast, you know, for the best way to put it. He's not able to now dictate these things anymore. So Daniel is officially writing as from the perspective of everybody seeing it. But notice verse number 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and picked back up in the first person again. So it's, it's Nebuchadnezzar's story. And he starts chapter 4 with praising the Lord that it was good that the events that he's about to tell us about happened. <laughs> it's good that God made me a wild beast for seven years. And praise the Lord for it. And as we think about that, we say, man, that's really odd. But he closes the chapter in the same way. He says, at the end of the seven days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted, I'm sorry, after the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. Notice where he lifted up his eyes when he returned, when his mind was brought back to him. He turned his eyes up to the heavens. It, needless to say, he took his eyes off himself, pride was gone, he was completely humbled, and he realized who was totally in charge. But he says, I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are uh, reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou verse number 36 at the same time my reason returned unto me and for the glory of my kingdom mine honor and brightness returned unto me and my counselors and my lords sought unto me and i was established in my kingdom and excellent majesty was added unto me now i nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven all whose works are truth and his ways uh, judgment and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And just as God controlled the timing of Nebuchadnezzar's descent into madness, so does the Lord dictate the return of his recovery. And notice this incredible enrichment that comes to his life in verse number 34, as he says that it was after the end of those, of those days, as he lifted up his eyes into the heavens, that his understanding returned. The king testifies now, again, in the first person, at first person, as I mentioned, and after these seven years are complete, he's regained his senses completely. And it's as if he's been released from the prison of his own mind. It's as if he has complete and total freedom established to him again. And he raises his eyes to heaven and makes the declaration that the God of the Jewish people, the God, Jehovah God, is the almighty God that has power and dominion over all things. He praises God and he declares God uh, that God deserves honor. And he is the one, that God is the one, God almighty is the one that will live forever and ever. See, the fundamental difference between man and animal is the fact that God made man in his own image. And therefore we can relate to him. In his pride, he took his eyes off of God. God said, okay, buddy, I'll get your attention. I'll humble you. And he caused him to be like an animal to where he could not relate to God. And the moment he regained his senses, he was able to recognize in whose image he was made. And he praised God for such. 
The Westminster Confession states this. It says that the chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. And my friend, God made us in his image. He created us in to have uh, aspects and a relationship with him, one that is able to recognize him for who he is so that we might be able to honor him. When we say that, he made us, uh, that we are made in his image, it is talking about our, us as a creation, as a whole. We, it, it's not about the fact that of male or female or any of those uh, issues, but it is the fact that we as a creation are made in his image. It requires the mind of a man, a mind of a woman, the mind of mankind that has been made in his image to be able to recognize his glory and for who he is. An animal just can't do that. He, the Bible tells us that he could make the rocks to cry out. He could allow it, but that's not how he's created this world. That is not how he's, he has constructed things. But you and I, my friend, have an almighty op, uh, 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 opportunity to be able to recognize that there is a God, and recognize his glory, and to praise him for who he is. Amen. See, before he was humble, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't using his mind to his full purpose. He had it focused on self instead of the Savior. But once he was humbled and once he regained his mind, he was able to now be able to recognize God for who he is. And notice his intelligent exaltation as we close out the chapter. At the second, passage, the second half of 34, he says, I praise and honor him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. See, here's a man who had been established into the position that he was in because of God's appointing. In chapter 2 with that statue and the vision within the statue, the, the head of gold representing Nebuchadnezzar was God's uh, decree that Nebuchadnezzar, for this period of time, you're in control. But there will be one that comes later on. Nebuchadnezzar seemingly thought like he was going to get away with not having to experience that, as we read in chapter 3, and he erected that 90-foot statue of of solid gold, uh, representing the fact of his might and his power, and said everyone in the world had to bow to it when the call to worship was made, throwing ultimately Daniel, Sha I'm sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace because they're not bowing. When God protected them, he saw them walking in the fire, saw the fourth man as unto the Son of God, and said, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, God truly is real. And he made a decree even that there should be no one to speak against the God of heaven. But then chapter number four comes along, it's like as if he forgot all of those things and begins to boast some more. And because the, the bad hadn't come, because the other countries hadn't come against him and taken him out, he's beginning to still think that somehow he's in control forever. And so he is boasting about all of these things. But when he, after he's humbled, when God allows him to have his mind established back, notice that he said that it's God's kingdom that is established from generation to generation. God's rule is eternal, and it is always in effect. See, men come and go as God appoints them, but God is the one that is truly sovereign. There will be people that are in charge in different countries and in different regions and in different places, 
and they've been there because God's allowed them to be put there. But they will only be there for a period, for a period of time. But God's rule and reign lasts forever. And, his, his, and he remains sovereign regardless of whether men on earth acknowledge him as such or not. He, the people that he allows to be in charge in governments and in kingdoms and all of that, they're there because he's allowed them to be there. But guess what? He's there, he is still in charge even if they don't recognize him as the one who put them in place. You say, Pastor, are you worried about what's going on in our country? The human side of me says yes. But the spiritual side th- says, says there's no need to worry. Because no matter what happens, God's always in control. And this is what we learned from Daniel chapter 4. That a man that was the most powerful man in the world thought he had it all together. And that the God of all the universe, the Almighty One, said, let me just uh, give you a snap of the fingers and I'll show you how powerful I am. For seven years made him a wild man and humbled him to the point where he was able to finally come to his senses and say, the God that the Jews serve and worship is the true sovereign God. Perhaps this is the more personal lesson for the king. In verse number 35, it says that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Look at verse number 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Now, he doesn't mean that God cares nothing for the people of his creation. Don't, Don't misconstrue that. He means that in any conversation about power and world outcomes, the only actor truly that truly matters is God because God is the absolute author of history. See, some, they look at God as the fact that, well, yeah, I know he's in control, but the way he's in control is the fact that he just kind of reacts to situations. He just kind of reacts to different circumstances so he can direct them. Kind of like when you're trying to uh, teach your child to ride their bike without training wheels for the first time. And you're kind of holding on to the back seat and then you let them go and then you're like running as fast as you can to try to keep up with them to make sure that they don't go one way or the other. You're really not in control of where they go. You're just there to kind of try to stabilize them. Or maybe like the uh, toddler who's learning to walk and and, uh, they finally let go of your fingers and they're kind of just, you know, tripping and stumbling around and you're just there kind of hoping to make sure to cushion their fall a little bit. That's kind of how some people think God is in control. That things just happen by chance, and the way that they happen by chance, he's just kind of there to soften the blows and to kind of steer it in the right direction. But neither of these views could be further from the truth. And Nebuchadnezzar testifies from firsthand experience that the answer of who God is and how he's in control is very different than what we just spoke about. And that is that God is in control of all things. I'm here to tell you tonight, think about the most horrendous, awful thing that has ever happened in this world. I'm here to tell you God allowed it. I'm not saying God created evil. Don't don't misconstrue that. I'm not saying God causes sin. I'm not saying God causes people to do wrong. We, We know that's just simply not true. 
But anything that does happen that does seemingly seem just evil and just horrible and wicked and just unrighteous all completely, God in his sovereignty for whatever reason has allowed that. Think of the best thing that has ever happened in this world. God made that happen. Isaiah 45 verses 5 through 7 gives us some insight into that. It says, I am the Lord. And there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Uh, that they might know from the rising of the sun uh, and from the west, and that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace. I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. See, Nebuchadnezzar saw the Lord give him great power. And then he experienced the Lord take it away from him, just like that. He went from the best of times to the worst of times, and now he finds him ba himself back into a position of power once again, and he can explain it no other way than this. God's in control. God has caused this to happen. Furthermore, the king's, uh, king adds in verse number 35 that no one is in a position to second guess what God does says and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou no one can stop him no one can challenge him and after all that's what it means to be God because if anybody could do anything to him stop him pause him trip him up keep things from happening or force him to do something else then that person would be God the king's account ends with the last two verses that show the decree, to, the degree, I'm sorry, to which the Lord worked changed his heart. First, the king was fully restored to power, of course. His counselors came back to him. Uh, those that uh, were in his leadership were able to come back, and uh, they gave him his place of authority in their life again. This is probably because Daniel helped keep things together for those seven years. Daniel is a man that had been taken into captivity, who had been pretty much treated as a slave, of course, given some position of power, no doubt. But Daniel could have been very easily, uh, it could have easily been said that Daniel would have been uh, justified, if you wanted to say it, to have overthrown Nebuchadnezzar during these seven years. It could, I mean, it, it could have been very well that Daniel uh, kind of got, may, could have gotten the thought in, in his mind, well, hey, here's my chance to set all my people free. I can start moving and, and making decrees of my own or making friends in high, other high places so that I can get the Hebrew people set free. But no, we find at the end of the seven years that the king is established back to his rightful place. I mean, after all, that is how a, a monarchy works anyways. The king's the king no matter what, but... Still, we see that there could have been a coup that had been uh, spoken about or thought about at least. But more than likely, it was Daniel that helped keep the kingdom together and the leadership together to be prepared for when Nebuchadnezzar was established back to his, his place of, of prominence again. And this was true grace for a man who was thought to have been insane for seven years. The king also, though, recognizes that his own pride was the, that was the cause of his downfall. He acknowledges that the Lord worked to humble him 
and he seemed to genuinely uh, uh, be pleased to have been brought to this point as well. It's up for debate. I don't know. Did Nebuchadnezzar trust God as the one and only God? The way that he speaks and the seemingly heart, seeming heart change that is spoken of seems to at least allude to possibly. He might have become a regenerated, saved man, as we would call it at this time, recognizing God for who he was. It's very likely that he just added God to the top of the list of his pantheon of gods. He could, but it could be that he, he said, no, this is the only God. I'm not sure. It's not clear cut. I guess if you're on the positive side of things, when you get to heaven, you'll plan to see Nebuchadnezzar there. If you're on the negative side of things, um, I don't know what else to say about that. But nevertheless, uh, we, I don't know. But at the very least, at this time, there's definitely a heart change. The fact that he recognized his pride and it was actually even to an extent thankful, to an extent thankful that God brought him to this point. And finally, look how the king addresses the Lord in the final verse. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor, honor the king of heaven, all whose works are true in his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. We find that Nebuchadnezzar learned, a, he learned the lesson. Ultimately, he learned the lesson. That those who are prideful, God has the opportunity and the ability to set him straight because he did exactly that in his life now remember even after nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and praised god uh, to uh, praise the god of israel he didn't free israel you ever think about that here is a man who god came i mean god literally shook this man to the core you would think that as his heart changed that he would have set the people of God free, but he didn't do that. Why? Because the people of God were in Babylon because that was God's will. That was his plan. Everyone that was experiencing at that time could not see it clearly, could not see it perfectly. Hindsight being 2020, we can look back and having the word of God, see how God is at work and see what he's doing and see the plan unfolding. But all I'm saying is they, they couldn't have seen it, not at least completely clear. The people of God may have assumed as soon as Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and, and after his possible conversion, uh, having seemingly praised God for who he was, they probably thought to themselves, oh, here's our chance, we're going to be finally set free. He'll probably even help us restore our temple maybe. But none of these things happened. It didn't happen because God's plan was for them to stay there because this was just the beginning of those times of the Gentile rule that we spoke about coming from chapter number two. And the people of God were in, in captivity because God brought them there. Chapter number four of Daniel reminds, though, reminds us, though, that both Jew and Gentile are under God's control at all times, no matter what. Say, so, Pastor, what do we take away from that tonight? We take away from that tonight that we, no matter our circumstances, are in God's hands. If God allowed his people 
to remain in captivity even after an ungodly king came to his senses to recognize God as being almighty and his generation, his kingdom lasting from generation to generation. He, they, he left them there for his plan and for his purpose. All I'm here to say tonight is regardless of our situation, whether it be family-wise, whether it be relationship-wise, whether it be politically speaking, whatever situation we find ourselves in, God is in control. And we just stay faithful to, tr- to him, trusting and believing that we are constantly in his hand and he is unfolding his greater plan in our lives. You say, I say, Pastor, that's easier said than done. Absolutely right it is. It truly is. But that's why we have the word of God. Amen. To have the instruction, to remind us of these things, to have the, the examples, to s- say, hey, People have been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, rolled the roller coaster, right? Like, it's all, they, it's, this isn't anything new. And as long as we are here on this earth, which is not our home, as long as we are on this earth, we acting in His will are uh, just part of His unfolding perfect plan. The quicker we resign ourselves to that thought and to that to that realization, the whole lot easier life becomes. And so I'm not here to make little or to light make light of our plights and our circumstances and what takes place in our life because they're real. And there are things that are huge and they hurt. And they cause pain and they cause confusion sometimes. And we begin to scratch our head and wonder. But if we can always come back to this truth, God's got a plan and he is in control. And for whatever reason, what seemingly is a horrible situation for me right now is ultimately, as Romans 8, 28 tells us, going to work to good. Because God's got a plan for us. As we move on, we're going to begin to see some more of the prophetic plan and boy oh boy does that put a spin on things to consider as well but as we walk away from chapter number four tonight i hope that we all walk away with this assurance and remembering that god is in control and he always is father we thank you for this night and we thank you for this this chapter and the fact that you uh in the midst of all that was going on in your people's life in those days, we're able to still show yourself mighty. And Lord, there's plenty that's going on in our lives. Some people have family issues. Some people are facing health issues. Some people are facing relationship issues. Some are having problems at their workplace. Some are struggling financially. Lord, no matter what situation that we find ourselves in, no matter, no matter what circumstances we are experiencing, uh, no matter, the, no, the fact is they are real, that they, they, they cause pain sometimes, they cause us to uh, hurt at, at times as well. Not diminishing them, not taking away from the reality of what's going on, but Lord, help us to always realize that the true reality is that you are still in control and you're working everything into your plan and and uh, it, nothing's caught you by surprise. And Lord, the quicker we just come to the, the point to where we trust you and in faith believe you, 
and just rely on you through every circumstance, by t- through every turn. Lord, I ask now that you would help us to come to that point because the quicker we do, the better off things will be in our life. And we'll have that peace that passes all understanding. Being justified, as Romans tells us, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we pray for that peace tonight in, our, in every single heart of every believer that would just be able to have peace because of their trust and reliance upon you. As we have not only the biblical examples, but we also have examples throughout all history. Examples from times that we've experienced even ourselves that we can rest on and rely upon. Because you are worthy and you are trustworthy. And God, now we ask them that you pr- help us to praise you and glorify you in all things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a prayer request that you haven't